Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, according to a state historic marker, the last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of Cape Canaveral. New research conducted by Molly Thomas demonstrates that the battle actually took place somewhere between West Palm Beach and Boca Raton. I think in my article I referred to it as a two-ship treasure fleet on a secret mission to secure funding to pay the American soldiers that had been pretty much languishing for almost two years without pay in uh, upstate New York and other places throughout the colonies. We'll discuss an 1817 publication looking at the West Florida boundary issue disputed by France, Spain, and the United States. It's really fascinating about these types of arguments and what these types of publications really clarify is how important this tiny little spit of land that really had very few settlers meant to the future of the American nation. And the mystery of a 112-year-old Seminole County Sheriff's badge found buried in the woods is solved. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. Easy, you know the way it's supposed to be. Silver on the shoreline, let us be. Talking about very free and easy. The British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783, encompassing the entire American Revolution. Florida remained loyal to England and King George III throughout the conflict. As colonial historian Roger Smith explains, the British separated Florida into two regions with Pensacola, the capital of West Florida, and St. Augustine, the capital of East Florida. In West Florida, Probably 98%, as, as, as historians have, have, have guessed as much as, and estimated as much as 98% of the uh, trade that went throughout uh, West Florida actually went through uh, New Orleans, which was illegal. Uh, because of the Navigation Acts, everything was supposed to go to, to England and then be put on new ships and shipped to whatever the destination was. So it would have to have gone from, say, Mobile to England and then back to New Orleans. So they just said, forget this, you know, we're going to send it down the river. So they were loyal to whatever system worked best. And what worked best was that the British basically left them alone and they did whatever they wanted to. In East Florida, it was a different situation. Um, in East Florida, they hadn't made basically a dime from 1763 to 1774. From 1774 uh, on, the, the colony became prosperous because of the peace with the Seminoles. And uh, once the colony became prosperous, um, on, uh, on August 11, 1776, news of the, uh, the Declaration of Independence reached St. Augustine. And a large crowd gathered in the plaza with effigies of Samuel Adams and uh, John Hancock, and they hung them in trees and set them on fire. 
because the attitude was like, okay, we haven't made any money for 11 years and you want us to do what? You know, so it was, uh, it was very much, it, it wasn't like the rest of the, of the colonies where it was, uh, you know, estimated at a, a third loyal, a third patriot, a third just leave me alone. In East Florida, it was every man adamantly loyal to king and country. The last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of the east coast of Florida on March 10, 1783. Two American ships, the Alliance and the Duc de Lazune, were on a mission to bring 72,000 Spanish silver dollars from Cuba to the American colonies to pay the Continental soldiers. The American ships were intercepted by three British ships, the Alarm, the Sybil, and the Tobago. According to a state historic marker, the last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of Cape Canaveral. New research conducted by Molly Thomas demonstrates that the battle actually took place somewhere between West Palm Beach and Boca Raton. Thomas wrote about her findings in a series of articles published in the Indian River Journal. I think in my article I referred to it as a two-ship treasure fleet on a secret mission to secure funding to pay the American soldiers that had been pretty much languishing for almost two years without pay in uh, upstate New York and other places throughout the colonies. As the American ships carrying much-needed funds for the Continental Army met with the British ships determined to stop them, one ship from each side took the lead in battle. Molly Thomas. Basically, you had two ships sailing north, and you had three ships sailing south. The ships heading north were the Americans, and the three sailing south were the British. And um, only the Alliance and the Sybil really engaged. The other two, the Tobago and the Alarm, kind of lingered back a little bit and didn't get involved in the fight. And the Duke de Lazune just did its best to stay out of it because it couldn't keep up with any of them. So they would have really just seen the Alliance and the Sybil going at it together. Robert Morris of the Continental Congress was the mastermind of the secret plan to bring Spanish money from Cuba to fund the American Revolution. His plan would lead to the last naval battle of the war. He was the chief financier for a lot of things to do with the military, and he was also what they called an agent of Marine, which is basically like the Secretary of the Navy now. And he was a self-made shipping mogul, so he had a lot of connections both in buying and selling ships, so he actually purchased the Duke de Lazune himself, and he also had a, a lot of access to just in networking with people in other ports, so he was able to coordinate them going down to Havana to secure this money from a French financier. As the American Revolution progressed, East Florida became a haven for loyalists fleeing American colonies to the north. The East Florida economy flourished as they provided supplies to the British colonies in the Caribbean. Roger Smith. As the southern colonies fell, it kind of came, hit like a wave, starting uh, with, with Virginia and just rolled down uh, into, into the southern colonies. And as that happened, the, the loyalists of these, of these colonies were funneled basically uh, into East Florida and then, and then trickle over to West Florida. So uh, to kind of give you an idea, when the war broke out, population-wise, we only had, if you included um, uh, Europeans and their slaves, we had about 3,500 people. Um, at the end of the war, just uh, right around um, Christmas of 1782, there were between 21 and 22,000 people here. So they literally funneled down and superpopulated East Florida. And what happened is that the, the British 
never got that the southern colonies reclaimed as they were after, but so much of what they were looking for and needed so desperately in the uh, Caribbean, we had here in East Florida the natural supplies for, um, for the foodstuffs and the flax and for um, naval stores and things like that. We picked up about 80% of the slack of what the southern colonies were no longer able to ship. Ironically, the Treaty of Paris was signed more than a month before the last naval battle of the American Revolution occurred. No one in the Americas knew that the war was over because word had not yet arrived from Europe. That knowledge might not have made a difference because America really needed the money from Cuba. Molly Thomas. The Battle of Yorktown had already happened. Everything had stopped for the most part as far as the hostilities went, but they wouldn't disband the army, um, despite all the times that, in the many letters that George Washington had sent, they, they refused to disband it because they didn't actually believe that they were going to come to any terms. So for that two-year window after Yorktown and then this battle, the, the soldiers were not paid and they didn't have the money to pay them. The HMS Sybil under James Vashon and the USS Alliance under John Barry were the two ships engaged in the last naval battle of the American Revolution. The Sybil started to go after the Duke. The, the Duke was a smaller ship, by far a slower ship, and whether or not they had realized it before they actually engaged with the Americans, the Duke had thrown off most of her cannons and ammunition to try to be faster, to lessen the load. So they knew that that was the weaker of the two ships and based on intelligence that I would have loved to find the source of, um, they were looking for the Lazoon. They, they knew that ship had the actual money on it. They didn't know that most of it had been removed by that point, but that's who they were going after. And Vashon was not really wanting to engage with the Alliance, but when the Alliance saw her opportunity to get in between them, she did. So that's basically when the actual fight started. Thomas says the other ships present didn't get involved in the battle. The Alarm and the Tobago didn't really get involved at all. In fact, as I found out towards the end of this three-article series, they basically hoisted the flags of retreat almost immediately as soon as the Alliance flipped around and, and got in between the Sybil and the Duke. So they they didn't want to engage. Now, whether they didn't want to engage because of, I guess for lack of a better term, prowess of the Alliance and her captain, I'm not sure. But at this time, nobody, none of them would have known that the war had actually come to an end. So it's interesting to me that even though they could have probably, between the three of them, easily taken those two ships, that they didn't. And particularly since they did know what was on board. With East Florida a Loyalist stronghold, the mission to bring funds to the Continental Army through enemy waters was dangerous. Thomas believes the American ship captains must have anticipated encountering British ships on the way home from Cuba. I think they really did. The only saving grace for them was the Spanish presence in the Caribbean. Other than that, from the day that Barry sailed out to meet John Green in Havana, he was sailing through British territory with all those little islands because that was all British controlled. And he makes several notes in his log throughout that trip before he got to Havana that said they were everywhere. And he actually engaged with a couple of them and very fortunately was able to escape a, a very dangerous altercation to get to Havana. So. 
they were anticipating the British presence throughout. The mission was ultimately successful, but a very close call as the war was ending. Molly Thomas. I don't like to pose any conjecture as to what would have happened ultimately. The, the distance between Britain and the newly formed United States at that time was so significant that I don't think them losing this would have changed anything with the outcome of that treaty, but it certainly would have been a, a big hit to morale because they would not have been able to pay those soldiers. At the end of the American Revolution, control of Florida returned to the Spanish. Roger Smith. That is one of those factors stranger than fiction kind of stories. The, the British, um, they believed uh, they, had, they had repelled three invasions into East Florida, and they had been involved in uh, the, the invasions, uh, incursions of, of the British into Georgia, holding Georgia. Some of these men had fought uh, in, in approaching uh, Charleston. And they believed, kind of like the Canadians, that when the war was over, they were the only colony south of the, the Canadian border that never lowered the Union Jack. So they believed that they had earned their right to remain a, a British colony uh, just like the, Canada had. Uh, the problem was at the end of the war, the, the Spanish came along and said, okay, we're sitting here at the, uh, at the, at the Treaty of Paris. We want Gibraltar. And the British said, look, you tried twice during the conflict to take back Gibraltar. You lost both times. We're not going to just hand it to you. As a matter of fact, if you want, we can go back to war over Gibraltar. I mean, that controlled, you know, the, the, the flow of everything in and out of the, the Mediterranean. So, uh, so the, the British, kind of being British, they said, I'll tell you what we'll do. You captured West Florida. We're going to let you keep it. Okay. And, and just because we're nice guys, we're going to throw in East Florida. So you can have back what you had all those years. And it absolutely sucker punched the, uh, the loyalists here in East Florida because so many of them had sacrificed lives and families and, and their fortunes to come down here to, to maintain some kind of a base here. And now they're being handed back for, for political reasons. They found themselves nothing but pawns in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the empire. We spoke with Molly Thomas, author of a series of articles on the last naval battle of the American Revolution, published in the Indian River Journal, and Florida colonial historian Roger Smith. Molly Thomas will discuss her research at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa, Saturday, June 23rd at 2 p.m. South on my shoulder. Guess I'll set a course and go. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the early 19th century, the border of West Florida was a matter of international dispute. Yeah, that's right. Well, Spain had controlled Florida from the 16th century all the way up until 1763, when at the end of the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, Britain actually gained control of Florida. But at the same time, there was a secret negotiation between France and Spain that actually ceded the Louisiana Territory, which was all of this land west of the Mississippi River, to Spain. And it was kind of a secret agreement. And, and at that point, it wasn't much of an issue until after the American Revolution. And this newly formed American nation now became a primary component in the diplomatic relations and, and became part of the negotiating equation. And in 1783, the United States ended up, uh, because Spain had helped the United States uh, take over West Florida, uh, the Battle of Pensacola, Florida now became part of uh, the Spanish Empire again. It begins what we call the Second Spanish Period from 1783 to 1821. But there was still a matter of ownership rights, because at this time in western Florida and what is now present-day Louisiana, you had a lot of different people who were coming in and settling this area. And it was kind of an ambiguous border area. So there were a lot of different from people coming in, a lot of different nationalities. And when the United States began expanding its empire, that became a serious issue because the United States wanted control, of course, of the Mississippi River. And here you had a Spanish territory that was claiming control everything east of the Mississippi River up to the 31st degree uh, north parallel line. And that was established by the 1795 treaty, uh, this border between the U.S. and Spanish territory. But there was a constant pressure. The United States was expanding its empire. uh, And there was a lot of sentiment, at least within the U.S. government, to push and depress the Spanish government to try and acquire as much territory as possible. And that's when we get into what we call the West Florida controversy or the West Florida question. It really became a matter of interpreting the language of these international treaties, the ones that I just talked about, 1763, 1783, 1795, and then later in 1800, what we call the the Louisiana Purchase. So Spain had controlled this Louisiana territory, and then they actually gave it back to France. They were under pressure by Napoleon in 1800. They gave the territory back to France with the understanding that if France were to give the property up, they would give it back to Spain. But instead, they turned around very quickly and sold it to the Americans. Uh, This became known as the Louisiana Purchase. So it put further pressure on the uh, Spanish colonial government to kind of bolster their claim, at least, to control of of what was considered West Florida. So it was all of this territory from Mississippi east to the Atlantic within the confines of of present-day Florida. Now, you have here an original publication written by an American diplomat weighing in on this border dispute. Yeah, that's right. And as I said, it it really escalated into an international incident. And and Florida became a bargaining chip for a lot of broader international affairs between these great colonial powers, the United States, Britain, France, and Spain. And this particular article was written by H.M. Brackenridge. And Brackenridge is kind of an interesting guy. He was originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but moved down into the southern part of what is now the United States in the early 19th century. He was a a lawyer. He was a a congressman at one point and actually served under Andrew Jackson in the first few decades of the uh, 19th century as a a judge. So he'd served in Florida, in western Florida, as a district judge. And in 1817, he published this article, and it's entitled The Florida Question. And it was really picking up 
apart the treaties and the language of the treaties. But Brackenridge is really writing from an American manifest destiny kind of perspective. I mean, he's really lobbying for the American point of view, which was that when the Louisiana Purchase occurred, that West Florida should have been included in the in Louisiana Purchase. So all of those West Florida territories should have been ceded to the United States. And that was, of course, in, in 1803. Now, this is 1817. So between that time period in 1810, uh, we have what was called the, the birth of the West Florida Republic. There are a bunch of, of settlers who had moved into Spanish-held West Florida and actually took control. They took over the territory, declared a Republic of West Florida. The United States quickly moved in and then annexed that territory. So they started chipping away at, at the Spanish West Florida territory until the, the Spanish were eventually compelled to begin agreements that, that ultimately culminated into the Adams and this Treaty of 1819, ratified in 1821, so that all of Florida became a U.S. territory. But what's really fascinating about these types of arguments and what these types of publications really clarify is how important this tiny little spit of land that really had very few settlers meant to the future of the American nation and really the beginnings of this westward expansion. You know, we think about the Western United States as being part of that narrative, but but this part of Florida was a really key linchpin in those national and international negotiations and, and arguments. And today there are remnants of this border dispute in Louisiana, right? Yeah, that's right. The parishes, the civil parishes that are uh, the easternmost parts of, of Louisiana are now called the Florida parishes because of this very complicated political history, because they were at one point part of Florida. So as a result of the subsequent treaties, the Republic of West Florida, the annexation by the United States, and then the adams onis Treaty, it just carved away at that territory, but they still refer to them as the Florida parishes, and it, it reflects that very complex and interesting history. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers, the mystery of a 112-year-old Seminole County Sheriff's badge found buried in the woods has been solved. Broadcast journalist, historian, and Seminole County Sheriff's Office spokesman Bob Keeling has this report. Down a network of sugar sand trails near the Lake Seminole County line, this longtime metal detecting enthusiast, Mike, walks us back to the isolated spot where he made a remarkable discovery. I was scanning the area, mostly looking for coins, and I got this uh, pretty loud signal. This one had the sound of copper. He almost moved on thinking it was just an old can. But then Mike took out this hand shovel and he dug. 
It was about eight inches down. And when I found it, I thought it was a piece of junk because it was kind of corroded with soil. But then when I wiped it off and I saw a deputy sheriff on it, I, I got really interested. A Seminole County Deputy Sheriff's Badge, number six, and shaped like a shield, not like the modern five-point star badge. When I saw the number six, I thought, wow, this has got to be a pretty early badge. The day he took us to where he found it, Mike gave us the badge, hoping we could find more answers. We don't have anything like it. To try to unearth some answers, our first stop was the Museum of Seminole County History. In plain view, this brand on the back led us to one answer, where the badge was made. In this storefront, a thousand miles away. C.D. Reese, 57 Warren Street, New York. Vintage photographs show Sanford police officers wearing this same type of shield badge circa 1905. From the very first book of Seminole County Commission minutes, dating back to when the county and sheriff's office were founded, we find badge six issued in 1916 at a cost of $2, predating any of these badges in the museum's collection. There's no doubt in my mind that it's uh, authentic to the period. This is like uh, an amazing find. It's the earliest badge, certainly, that we've uh, looked at from this county. For Sheriff Dennis Lima, confirmation that this badge dates back to the beginning of his agency makes its discovery historic. This is just so special uh, for not only us here at the Seminole County Sheriff's Office, me as sheriff, but for our community. This is an important part of our history. When it was founded in 1913, a judge declared Seminole a dry county. Historians suspect badge number six was lost out in the woods during an investigation into moonshining, which was common along the Wakiva River. But that leaves us with still another question. Whose badge is it? Number six was A.A. A. Moran. The deputy's last name was Moran, but in the old commission book, his first name is not mentioned. We took our search online to local cemeteries and came up with this. Aubrey Augustus Moran. His family history at the Geneva Historical Society confirmed he had been a deputy. At 36 years of age, this father of three became just the second man ever deputized in Seminole County. What I'm really proud of is that he was respected enough to be considered to be a deputy sheriff. For Moran's grandson, Ben Wheeler, this badge is a new concrete connection, a calling card from the ancestor he never knew. Moran died in a boating accident 14 years before Wheeler was born. I can hold it, then I can picture him with the rain dripping down over there in those woods, probably in the dark, looking for somebody. Wheeler agrees his grandfather's badge was likely lost during a hunt for moonshiners, then laid there waiting for this dedicated treasure hunter to unearth it all these years later. I thank you. That's, that's just wonderful. So far, at least, the answer to how badge number six ended up buried out here in the wilderness remains a mystery. But rest assured, we'll keep digging. Meantime, thank you to Mike for restoring such an important part of our agency's history. Broadcast journalist and Seminole County Sheriff's Office spokesman Bob Keeling is the author of four books on Florida history and culture. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Robert Casanello, Ben DiBiase, and Holly Baker, and this week, Bob Keeling. Our web extras at myfloridahistory.org are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.